We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Pilato. And the offseason's rolling through, and we wanted to do what we did last week when we discussed the Saquon Barkley upcoming contract negotiations and just the future of what they want to do with Barkley with Daniel Jones, the Giants quarterback. So there's so many different ways to go about this. We were kind of bouncing ideas off each other back and forth throughout the week. Because you don't, when if you're going to do a Daniel Jones podcast, you want to come and you want to do it right. What was that from? It's from like a movie or, or a show. If you're going to do it, you got to come right. I oh, know it's from uh, the J. Cole warm up mixtape where he's talking about doing uh, a song over the Dead Presence beat. He's like, if you come out the Dead Presence song, you got to come right. You got to come right. So anyone might know that reference, maybe, if someone's listened to the warm up mixtape, which is, by the way, an excellent mixtape by J. Cole. In my opinion, his best work ever. Um, Nick gave me that little look like he's never heard of it. This was actually a time like 2011 when I had quit rap listening to uh, hip hop and rap music. And someone was like, dude, I know you don't listen to rap anymore. You don't think anyone's good. Like back in the you know days of like your, your, your classic, the locks, the big L, all the people I listened to, but he's like, check out this J Cole guy. And it was before J Cole was anything, Nick. He just had this warm yeah. up mixtape out there and maybe some things he did before that, that I know. And, and it was just awesome. But anyway, yeah, I, is- I never did that before though. <laughs> yeah, I know you're not. Do you probably don't even know a dead presence? The original is from jay-z all right i didn't but i did just drop a j cole reference that i believe went over your head oh what was it i said i ain't never did this before though does he have a song about that or something oh yeah it's one of his most famous songs which one wet dreams oh man i was thinking lights please but that's a that thing that's an even better version of it um of that type of concept but anyway i don't know what dreams i don't really know any of his new stuff i only know those mixtapes um but anyway, we're here to discuss Daniel Jones. We're here to talk Giants football. So we were figuring out a way to start this thing. And I think what we, how we want to start this discussion, and ultimately what we're going to do here is break down Daniel Jones' pros and cons like we did for Barkley, and then come to a conclusion of what Nick and I would do if we were in the position of the Giants general manager. That doesn't mean it's the right decision, or the be-all, end-all, but this is just what we would do. But before we do that, we wanted to break down what Nick and I are looking for at the quarterback position in today's NFL. So that's where it comes. That That's where I think the, you know, the argument can come into more of a focus. If we kind of first break down what we want out of a quarterback moving forward, what a good, what, what these traits can lead to as far as Super Bowls and constant championship contention. So Nick, I'm just going to go over mine and then you can get into yours and they might be the same, but we can talk more in depth for me. The first one and the most important one, 
Or no, sorry. I'm not going in order of importance. This is just, I didn't order these in importance, but I'll start with pre-snap and post-snap processing. They are two different things, and they're probably ultimately the most important things, specifically post-snap processing. Now, pre-snap processing, as we saw this year, got a lot better for Daniel Jones. I think working with Mike Kafka was a big help for him, especially in those home games when Kafka was up in the booth and they were able to kind of signal into things. And I saw some of the, him make some of his best pre-snap checks uh at home in home games this season also pre-snap processing can be kind of you know viewed in the prism of did when because this season was very similar to past seasons in that it was very much a one read based offense so when they were making that one read before daniel jones decided to maybe look at the b gap and run was that read open or was it the right read and i think more times than not this season that first read was the right weed and that's why we saw some more passing game success now post-snap processing it's a different breed for me post snap processing i still don't know how to quantify i've talked to a lot of people who who, who break down the quarterback position some people believe you you innately have it other people believe you can get better with it i if i had to pick one of those two boats believe it's innate and you kind of just have it or you don't have it post snap processing is how, how what field do you have for the actual field the full scope of the field after the ball is snapped are you able to process how those safeties rotated are you able to process different things and we saw daniel jones make a big jump in this regard as well nick did nick and i did a good job breaking down those film reviews times when daniel jones would catch the ball post snap confirm a linebacker here confirm a safety here with his eyes and then work from that point after first confirming where those guys are but there were also times on film where there was an open double move that Jones just didn't see or an open side of the field that he didn't see because he's reading the one side of the field. So that one still has more work to go. But as far as just overall, from a quarterback standpoint, pre-snap, post-snap processing one and two. Arm talent three. Now for arm talent, this often gets confused with arm strength. It's not the same thing. Arm talent and arm strength is not the same thing. I go back to the discussion, Nick, I had with Trent Dilfer like six years ago when I was working for 24-7 Sports. And Dilfer defined arm talent, and I really like how he defined it, as the ability for a quarterback to change the trajectory on the football, change the pace of the football, and to uh, change the arm angle when he needs on the arm slot to make difficult throws into difficult windows. It's not just can you rip the ball hard and can you rip the ball far. It's can you change those things. That's three for me. Consistency throw, or I'm sorry, ball placement, four. You got to have good ball placement. Pocket presence, pocket manipulation, five. Ability to create off script with your arm and legs. That's six for me. And then seven is just, this is a bigger one. This is, to me, how you get to the elite level in the NFL these days. I mean, there are different routes. Lamar Jackson had an elite season, but he's not, in my opinion, an elite level quarterback. The only way, in my mind, from watching the NFL at this point, to get to a consistent level of elite play at the quarterback position is can you use the entire field can you consistently throw outside the numbers and down the field, specifically outside the numbers? Why is that? Well, more teams, as they go to the too high shell or different versions of zone coverages, are le- there's not really many areas you can attack the field. You can't really attack the middle. But where you can, it, you can't attack down the field. Where you can attack is outside the numbers and those honey holes and those hole shots outside the numbers and between those zone co- and between those zone defenders. So. That one is kind of the be all end all for me. Like if you want to get to that level, you got to get, you got to be a consistent thrower outside the numbers, but all those other traits are kind of the baseline for me. Now, where are you at Nick? You just got to force the defense to cover every inch of the field. When you do that, you have so much more at your disposal. The running game will open up. You can actually attack those honey holes, right? Actually hit those honey holes when they come open. And we saw defensive coordinators not respect Daniel Jones's ability to do that this year, specifically Washington and Jack Del Rio. But I would say another, another trait that is really necessary for me in terms of building around a quarterback. And it kind of 
is related to a lot of the things you said, but you didn't use this term is just anticipatory passing, right? You know where your guy is going to be and you know where the defender is and you understand how to throw the football, when to throw the football with good timing to that receiver and where he's going to be. Not just throwing them open, which is somewhat anticipatory passing, but also just knowing in relation to where that defender is and where they're going to be based on that specific defender. And that comes through film study and a bunch of other type and a bunch of other things. I don't feel like Daniel Jones does that portion of the game overly consistently. I think we've saw it this year, but it wasn't something that I can say game in, game out. Yeah, he was doing that. Like the Bests do that, right? Like Drew Brees, not the biggest guy, but he threw with so much anticipation and he threw his players open and he knew post-snap, right? Some of this comes down to post-snap processing as well. He knew where his players were going to be and he was able to throw well before the player entered his break. And then guess what? You have guys like these slot receivers, like Robert Meacham and players like that end up having these huge seasons, Devery Henderson, right? Because there you have Drew Brees throwing the football. We need to see that. And that's something that hopefully can be developed, but not every quarterback has that. When you can stretch the field vertically, and when you can attack every inch of the defense and throw to every inch of the field and throw with anticipation, then you can make all the throws. And I feel like Daniel Jones specifically has that arm talent that you were talking about to do so, but we haven't necessarily seen him consistently pull the trigger. And that's something that I'm sure we'll be covering throughout this entire podcast. Yeah, that was an excellent breakdown, Nick. And it's well, it well belongs on the list. I mean, look, you can, there's different varying levels of arm talent where you can be a good quarterback, depending on what you have. I think Daniel Jones is a good example of that. He does not by any means have elite arm talent, but he also has pretty good arm talent. And he's shown me some things arm talent wise that I really like this year, specifically with his throwing on the run and his ability at times to change trajectory on the ball, specifically the two point conversion against the Vikings. Was that the wild card or was that the first Vikings game? I think it was the first Vikings game, right? It was. Yes, it was the first Vikings game. That one was an eye opener for me because I haven't seen him make a throw like that where he is in the red zone, change the trajectory, just get it right over the top of that linebacker. This is a two point conversion I'm talking about. And then into the hands of Bellinger. Um, Pre-snap, post-snap prospects, and there was all different, uh, you know, ability to create off script, all the things I mentioned, pocket presence manipulation. But what Nick said, the anticipatory throwing, the idea that you're not throwing the receiver once you see him open. You're throwing it before he's open into the spot you expect him to be. In addition to the consistency throwing outside the numbers, those two work hand in hand, and those two are the bucket of now you're at the elite level. When you start doing those things consistently, now you're at the elite level. And I think one thing we'll talk about on this podcast, Nick, is that one area that I thought you made a great observation on, and you have a lot of great observations. This one was one of the ones that stuck with me was that one thing we saw from a ball. Cause everybody thinks like with Jones, like where are we at with Jones? Well, one of the things he does great in people's minds is ball placement. And I think there are, there are some routes and there's some throws that he does have a really good ball placement on the deep digs, which we're going to get into later are really good throw for him. The deep balls. I think he has pretty good placement on, but what you mentioned was one area he struggles from a ball placement standpoint was on those vert was on those crosser routes, which was a big majority of the Giants offense. When the receiver's running for a while in, in NFL terms, obviously it's not too long, but in NFL terms when receivers on that vertical, I'm sorry, that horizontal plane for a while coming across. And we saw oftentimes, leading to what you just said before, tying it back into what you just said before, Nick, not good anticipatory throwing on those throws, right? He's throwing the ball behind the receiver or he's throwing the ball right at the receiver instead of ahead of the receiver so he can catch it and then run after the catch and so that's one area where i know people think the ball placement is really good with jones but i would say the ball placement is more along the lines of adequate when it comes to daniel jones or 
decently pretty good. Um, and I think there are plenty of examples, obviously this play that Nick is putting up against the Vikings, the interception, but there was also the play earlier in the season that should be touchdown against the Packers and Darius Slayton on that horizontal crosser where Jones just threw the ball behind Slayton. It wasn't even at him. And so this is just an area where there, you can see it right there. That ball needs to be way out ahead of the receiver. If you're watching on YouTube, this was the interception by Patrick Peterson. And what that could lead to is what you just saw in a quarterback undercutting that route. I'm so glad you brought up the Green Bay Packer instance because I remember when I first saw that, I thought it was an indictment on Darius Slayton, who, if we remember, he wasn't really involved in the game plan too much up until that point. He just started kind of getting ingratiated back into the lineup. And I was like, damn, Darius Slayton needs to turn around. And then I saw the All-22. I'm like, oh, wait, no, that's definitely on Daniel Jones. I think there was another instance, and I, and I don't have it in my notes right now, where it was pretty glaring and it was an almost interception. So that's just one thing that I feel like he can definitely improve on because he has thrown well over the middle of the field. I feel like he throws well on those deep dig routes, specifically yes. when the receiver is coming out of his break, right, Dan? But when the guy is running kind of a deep horizontal crossing route and he's already broken and he's kind of running for a long time on a horizontal plane, he doesn't do the best or most consistent job leading that receiver. And it led to that interception. It led to that would-be touchdown that was negated because it was well behind Darius Slayton. And that's just one of the aspects of his ball placement that I feel like can be improved. For sure. And I think in addition to that, you know, it's hard for us at this point to evaluate his ball placement on the outside the number throws because there just aren't too many of them on tape. I mean, the Giants threw a league low. I think it was 37 percent of their passes past the first down marker. Daniel Jones last season. I'll get that stat later because I have it somewhere in this talk. We have me and Nick have up like a 17 page doc just to notes preparing for this. Uh, it's going to be hard to find that, but I believe that percentage is correct. One of the lowest in the NFL. And a lot of the the outside the numbers people will be referring to is like, wait, I saw his passing chart. They're outside. The, it's because the Giants roll out so much. So there's right. going to be a lot of passing when he's on the run and he's rolling to one specific side. But I actually have it charted here. I think Daniel Jones, he only has, I think, like 10 or 12 passes that were outside the numbers, 10 plus yards from the pocket. He doesn't do it that often. Yes. And I believe only two of them, Dan, only two of them were from the far hash. So when, when you're not throwing from the far hash, as we said with the Jack Del Rio thing, defensive coordinators are going to pick up on that. And they're going to start doing funky things to defend the part of the field that you're more apt to throw towards. And one quick thing, Nick, I know we've gone over it a bunch on this podcast in the past, but there are a lot of new listeners coming in and new viewers, specifically the YouTube page that have at least made note that they've recently. Uh, yeah. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for <laughs> thanks for joining us. And hopefully you stay. But can you just break down what you mean exactly by throwing to the far hash versus the field side? the football field has two hashes on it, right? So if you are on that far hash, I mean, you're throwing towards the, when I say field side, that is going to be the side that has more space. So in college, the, the hashes are much wider. So it's really difficult to throw from the far hash all the way to the sideline. And on a side note, I just got done watching Tennessee's offense, Hendon Hooker. Wow. That guy can throw to every inch of the field. But when I say throw from the far hash, that means you are throwing to a space where there's more field. So when that's the case, the defenders have more time to react to undercut passes. You're going to need to throw it with more velocity and things of that nature. So it's a little bit more precarious. Better anticipation. Better anticipation, all those things. It's a little bit more precarious to throw it to the field side or from the far hash. But when you throw to the boundary side, which is the near hash, but I don't really ever use the term near hash, that is the side that Daniel Jones and the Giants offense really operated around. There's a lot more deep shots from that boundary side. So when I say boundary, that's just the short side of the field. Field side means the larger side of the field. 
Sure. And I think I might have made it confusing when I and I broke it down. So I'm glad, Nick, you um, clarified that. But yeah, so let's move forward here now, Nick, and let's take a look at the pros and cons of Daniel of re-signing Daniel Jones. Um, we'll get into the pros and cons of re-signing him to a five-year contract versus maybe another option at the end when we come to our conclusion of what to do. Or maybe we say we're going to let him go. I don't want to spoil this right now and give a tea and give and I just want to tease this. I don't want to spoil this right now. I want you guys to keep listening. But for now, we'll talk about the pros and cons of just bringing him back. The pros and cons of him as a quarterback moving forward on your franchise. Right, Nick? So I'll let you start this one off. Where do you want to kick it off with one of the top pros for you? And it doesn't have to be in an order because we kind of don't have it organized that way. I think first we should start with the character of the individual, the intangibles. And when you talk about the intangibles with Daniel Jones or any quarterback, you can go through the list of quarterbacks in the past that just failed out of the league because they were not true leaders. I believe Daniel Jones possesses the traits that are necessary to lead men on the football field and to lead men by example. Look, he gets in front of a microphone. He kind of has that Eli Manning, all shuck Southern type of vibe to him, but it seems like the team galvanized around Daniel Jones in 2022. Everything we hear about him from a leadership standpoint is positive. Even when the team sucked, people were still speaking up for Daniel Jones. And I feel like that is very important in today's NFL to be able to get around your teammates and have them respect you because you are the leader of the team. You don't always have to lead by being a rah-rah guy. That's not how Daniel Jones does it. That's not necessarily how Eli Manning did it. But the way Daniel Jones does lead is just by setting that example to be emulated. And I think that is just a very, very imperative part of playing quarterback. And he has that in spades. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I should, I think we should have probably mentioned that. I'll tell you why we didn't in a second, but I think we should have probably mentioned that on the beginning breakdown of what we're looking yeah. for in a quarterback, because that's the true baseline. That's the, you don't, if you don't have that, you never make him. There are examples of players throughout NFL history who had a lot more arm talent than Daniel Jones, and maybe even are better processors, maybe have a lot more everything than a Daniel Jones type, but they don't have that drive. Daniel Jones is the first person in that building every day. When they gave him a day off, he was still there early training. I heard in the weight room, he was the last person out. He not only does he the hardest worker on that team, but he's also a leader on that team because of things that he does in the game, right? Nick, there are examples of him running for that extra yard, throwing his body into the mix to get that extra yard as a runner, putting his body at risk for that, despite having an injury history that includes a neck injury. You know, things like that are going to happen when he does something like that in the game to run for that extra yard, to get that first down. The team loves that crap. You know, like, I don't want to say SHIT because we're trying to keep this family friendly, but the team, I would never say crap, though. Crap's not. I would never say X loves that crap. That's not a phrase I use ever. I just try to, in the moment, make this a little more family friendly. But, you know, the players love that. The coaches love that. And that's a big thing. The combination of being the hardest worker, being in and out of that building first and last every day, that's the baseline for me. But the reason I never put it as, like, too much of a pro for me is because I personally think if you don't have that, you never make in the NFL, no matter how much talent you have, you never make it in the NFL. I know there's been examples over time. I don't know if this is the reason Josh Rosen failed, but I know it's part of the reason Josh, like the main reason, but I know it's part of the reason Josh Rosen failed because, you know, people said he wasn't dedicated to the game. And I think that proved pretty obvious when, you know, he had such bad starts every time, every time they put him on the field, he was awful. It's like, dude, you don't even know how to like process this defense at all. Like at the very least you should be able to do that still to this day, the weirdest transition of college film versus NFL film, Josh Rosen. I mean, I don't know what happened there, but at UCLA, he did not look like the quarterback. He was in the NFL, but there are other examples throughout time to Marcus Russell, just players with a lot of talent that just didn't put it together mentally. So I think it's, it's fair to put that forward as the, as a pro, but also to kind of include, like you said, um, what he means to the teammates and what it means to the team to fight for those extra yards and do all those little things. 
just the competitive toughness yep. of him. And you couldn't turn a Giants game on this year, Dan, and not realize number eight's competitive toughness. And that just really strikes with every Giants player in that locker room when your quarterback is getting hit like that and popping back up and then doing it again, having the mental toughness to do it again, make a mistake and then come back and still challenge the defense in a certain manner. Daniel Jones has all of those traits. And leading into that is leading to my second pro for Jones would be kind of a buildup off of that, which is the clutchness. And I do start, I mean, this year I started to really feel like Daniel Jones added a clutchness factor to his game of some sorts. It may not be Eli level yet. Maybe he'll never get to that level. That's a tough level to reach, but there are multiple things I was looking for in the clutch factor. One was game winning drives. And he had five of those in this. He also had a game tying drive, the one against the Vikings. That to me was the most clutch drive by far of the season, though. I will say the drive against the Packers, which was 91 yards when Barkley got hurt, wasn't a game tying drive or winning drive, but it was probably his best individual drive of the season, in my opinion. But that Vikings drive in the first game, they lost to the Vikings where he drove them all the way down. They scored. Then he hit the two point conversion with that really good throw to Bellinger. That was a really clutch drive. So he has five of those. He had a game tying drive. And I felt like in the playoffs, that was the second factor. I, I told you before the season, Nick, one main thing, reason I wanted the Giants to make the playoffs is I thought throughout my lifetime that Eli Manning rose to a completely different level once he reached the playoffs. It was a different version of him, in my opinion, with the exception of 2011, where he was just really good all year. Jones, I thought, played his best football in that Vikings game. I don't think the Eagles game was his best game. Um, but I also think just things were just not working out for the Giants in that game. The Eagles were just well in tune with what they wanted to do offensively. The Giants, they're like, we're ready for this quick game. You're going to have to figure something else out. And the Giants simply couldn't figure anything else out. Uh, and falling behind early sucks too. But I felt like he did rise to the occasion of the playoffs. So I would say the clutch clutchness factor is another pro. It would be in the pro column for Daniel Jones. Yeah, I hate the fact that the Minnesota, and I'm not trying to, make excuses or devalue Daniel Jones' performance against the Minnesota Vikings. But that defense, Dan, was one of the worst defenses I've seen in, in quite a while, how they were handling simplistic concepts that the Giants were throwing at them. But still, Daniel Jones did his job. He recognized the errors, and then he attacked, and he exploited them. And I just don't really fully understand how they could have been that unprepared to play the New York for Giants. Playoff game too. Right. Dude, it was it was terrible. It was one of the worst things I've seen on film from a playoff. It's, uh, and it's not like the Giants really reinvented the wheel in that game. A lot of what they ran conceptually was similar to what they did in their first game against the Vikings. So it's like they really should have had a better beat on it, but they didn't. And Giants took advantage. Let's move on to another um, pro for me in the Daniel Jones uh column and this is probably gonna i'm probably group this all in together nick because i want to discuss it with you this is really what it comes down to the core of my case for jones it's taking a step back it's thinking about this from a thirty thousand foot perspective and overview what is he what kind of asset is he right now to me he's an asset that plays the most important position in football at 25 years old is coming off his best season on tape help the team win games with those game winning drives has the arm talent to make every single throw to all areas of the field, has the speed to be an impact runner, has made multiple massive strides in two areas that we're going about to go over in the pro column, so I don't want to spoil them right now, but I'll tip them off. Ability to create off script and pocket manipulation. And so now I'm looking at an asset that is tall, which is important to me. I used to not care as much about this, but like recent years, seeing some of the Russell Wilson and Kyler Murray tape has made me kind of reevaluate uh, height at the quarterback position. 
I just don't know if I want an outlier anymore at that from that standpoint. I don't know if I want a guy who might not be able to see the middle of the field and fully use the middle of the field because he can't see over the offensive line. Daniel Jones is not that. He's six foot five, towers over the offensive line, and he throws a tall ball because he has really good arm mechanics taught to him by Cutcliffe and whoever over the years. I know he went to the Manning Academy too. So he throws that over the shoulder type throw. So he's always going to really, not, when you watch Daniel Jones, Nick, how many balls are getting bad down the line of scrimmage? Not that much, not that many, nope. right? And a lot of quarterbacks get balls bad at the line of scrimmage. That's not an issue with Daniel Jones. So I think the actual profile, what he is, his frame, his speed, all of those factors, his age and the fact that he came off the best season, that makes him an asset that I don't really want to get rid of. That's like where it really comes down. That's the nuts and bolts of it. Just his prototypical build, speed and arm talent are all at a level that I think is in the pro column. And the fact that he is around the same age as Hendon Hooker, I think he's only slightly older than him. He's still 25 years old, yeah. Daniel Jones. Okay. His birthday is May 27. So he'll be 26 at the start of the season. That's still a really young quarterback, a developing quarterback. Guess who else's kinda... birthday is May 27, by the way? Isn't it yours? It's my birthday. Same birthday yeah, as yeah. Daniel Jones. It was meant to be. Yeah. It was just meant to be. Exactly. But and I also think when you look at the, the entirety of Daniel Jones's career, he had that first season with Pat Shermer, had some success, but I agree with you, it was a little bit more inflated, just kind of a lot of garbage time stats and things of that nature, but he exceeded my expectations that season. But then the next two years, Jason Garrett comes in, and Jason Garrett's main priority was stopping the turnover-worthy plays. I would say that was an admirable priority, but it also at the same time stifled Daniel Jones's growth and development. I also just think Jason Garrett was not a coordinator who had any ability to adjust off of his scheme that had success back in like 2008. And that ended up being a really huge problem for not just Daniel Jones, but the Giants offense in general. And now it's his first year. Everybody's kind of written him off, right? This is just going to be a year where the Giants suck. They'll have a top 10 pick and they'll go out and they'll get a Will Levis or a, a CJ Stroud or whomever, but Daniel Jones really just took to the coaching and led the Giants to a playoff victory. So how much more can you grow off of that? And that is a whole nother aspect of the pro portion of Daniel Jones, still a young quarterback, has his size, has his speed, and with his first competent coaching staff in an environment where he has a little bit of NFL experience, he showed significant growth. So there's still obviously that potential to grow from there. That has to be one of the biggest contributors to why the Giants want to bring him back. hundred percent. If they didn't believe there's significant uh, growth possibility here, then they would never resign him. They're not a bad, this is not like, this is not Dave Gettleman. This is not somebody who's, I drafted him. I got to resign him. This is a new regime. And I know there's pressure from ownership with John Mara. And I know there's pressure from the teammates and from the locker room because who goes to the playoffs, wins a game, and then gets rid of the quarterback. It's it's very unheard of, um, and that pressure is true. But at the same time, Joe Shane, is, his career is on the line here. Like That's what's really going to come to the forefront here. He's putting his career on the line for a player that he believes, and if he does put his career on line for the player, I should say, he believes that he can grow. And why does he believe that he can grow? Some of the things that we just talked about, his height, his frame, his speed, his arm talent, and his age. You brought this up, Dan. This is somewhat of an, uh, an anomalous situation, right? Like how many teams in the past have been faced where you have this kind of quarterback that is written off and he leads that team to the playoffs and wins a playoff game under the leadership of the new general manager with a roster that kind of sucks. That doesn't happen all and that often. And they find his fifth year option. 
and they declined his fifth year option, which is really huge. And that was by this regime. It wasn't the right. previous regime that declined it. Well, so, no, it wasn't. Dave, Dave's yeah. the <laughs> There's no Dave would have already right? made him a $46 million. Dave would have probably broke the Mar Murray. He might, he might, he might, it might have been like a $50 million deal if Dave was still here. Oh, my God, man. Good old Dave Gettleman. But it is. It's an anomaly, this situation. So it's interesting to see how Shane is going to handle it. Because you're right. At the end right. of the day, it's his career that's going to be on the line based on this decision making. It is. And there, no, there's no way, like, no matter how much pressure you think is coming from Marin, the fans, I don't think it's enough to outweigh what Shane wants to do. And not just Shane, Brian Dable, they're working together. So it's also Dable. Like, Dable's the quarterback guy. He's the whisperer. He's the one we want evaluating QBs. If he makes this decision to give a five year deal to Daniel Jones, he believes very strongly that Daniel Jones will grow. This is He's not paying for this as a finished product. He's paying for what can be. And that's kind of what I was talking about earlier uh, yesterday, Nick, on Twitter. I was like, a lot of people that I really trust on Twitter, right? Like really good film analysts, really good analysts. Pretty much no one outside of the Giants bubble thinks this is a good idea to re-sign Jones to a 40 plus million dollar per year contract. And a lot of smart people have laughed at it. They've made jokes about it and I get it, but they're, I think they're thinking of it from the mindset and the framework of this is a ridiculous deal based on what he's done. But like I said yesterday, a contract is not a, it's not a reflection of what's happened. It's a projection of what can be. So if they make this decision, they're projecting a lot. And that means they have, they still have to be right. It's just because you want to make a projection doesn't mean you're going to get it right. And if you're wrong, it's a bad projection. And, you know, maybe those people who laughed at it can then come back into the fray. But they can't, everybody's viewing this thing, in my opinion, as like, what has Jones done over his four years? And that's what I'm thinking, you know, she, he should be paid for. But that's just not how this thing works. Yeah, I mean, I think if anybody knows Daniel Jones's limitations, it's Brian Dable because right. he was the one who was constructing that offense and he wasn't asking him to do some of the parts of playing quarterback that we're going to go over in the con section that I still have significant question marks in terms of Daniel Jones. Yeah, for sure. Let's get right now into some more of the pros, though, first, because yeah. there are a lot. And you met, you hinted at one before, but. This is a huge one for me because if you look at the Bill Parcells book of, you know, school of how to win football games, it's don't turn the freaking ball over guys. And Bill Belichick's the same way. Just win the turnover battle. And you look at all the stats and it's like, oh, damn, every team that wins the turnover battle is a good team. Every team that wins the turnover battle wins week to week. And Daniel Jones did a really good job of eliminating the turnovers this year. I think from the interception standpoint, he was much better because of a lot of factors, not just the fact that. But one of those factors, which isn't much of a pro, but it should be noted, is that Brian Dable limited, didn't ask him to do much throwing the football this season. But another reason why the turnovers came down is just the system was better for him, right? Like, first of all, the route concepts and combinations were much better and more well-designed for Mike Kafka than Jason Garrett. Second of all, Daniel Jones is better when he's not throwing these passes that are breaking back to the quarterback, like the stop routes, the stick routes, the quick-hitting slants, like... I saw, you know, I saw a stat today. I think you put it in the doc, Nick, and I tweeted about it. The Giants essentially did something really interesting this year. They cut the slant passes and uh, slant pass attempts for Jones in half this season and basically replaced them almost entirely with crossing routes. And that's good. That's it's much harder to defend a crossing route, in my opinion, a few crossing routes than a slant. It, I mean, you could work the slant and look. Mike McCarthy made a career with the slants, the slant flat stuff with Aaron Rodgers back in his day, though. Some people might argue that that's also why, you know, it led to a little bit of the downfall there in Green Bay and how they haven't won a Super Bowl in a long time. So I don't think it was very sustainable, but he did cut down on the turnover rate 
There weren't as many interception-worthy throws, and the fumbles were not really there this year. And a big reason why the fumbles weren't there were the second pro, and I want to bring both of these up and turn it over to you because they work hand-in-hand. The reason, biggest reason for me why the turnover rate went down, he's really become a pro. Uh, you know, in the pro column, as far as the turnover quarterback goes, is because of the pocket manipulation and the pocket presence. A lot of Daniel Jones's turnovers over the course of his first three years of his career were him not processing fast in the pocket, sitting in the pocket, and then one of two things happened. Either he was late with the throw and it got tipped in interception or just undercut and intercepted, or he was late to, and he didn't even throw the ball because he's just waiting for that read to get open and he was hit from behind and he fumbled. He got rid of that by the Giants, you know, coaching him up to just run instead. Like, don't sit on that mm-hmm. read. Look it up ahead of you. That B gap's open, just run. And that helped him become a quarterback who's now a pro, I believe, in the pro column. And it's crazy because I know the numbers were down from a turnover rate with Garrett to some extent, but not really because they weren't really moving the ball. So there was not real give and take. They moved the ball pretty decently this year. It was a lot of smoke and mirrors at times, and it was a lot of running with Jones or Barkley, one of the two. But they moved the ball, and they scored the ball in the red zone, and they didn't turn the ball over in the red zone. So I really think now this season was the one that kind of cemented him forward into the pro side of the pros and cons as far as is he a turnover-type quarterback? I don't think he is anymore. Just leveraging his athletic ability between the 20s and even in the red zone as well, but let's focus a little bit between the 20s first on those third and six situations, on those second and eight situations to put themselves in the third and manageable really took this offense to just a completely different spot than what right. we've seen. The previous coaching staffs didn't do that. Look, with the playoffs included, Daniel Jones rushed for 805 yards with seven touchdowns. He only had five runs that were over 15 yards. So you're talking about just a ton of 10, 7, 6, 5, those important runs. And as you said a little bit before, if he was standing in the pocket, he would fumble in the past, right? When the pressure would get up on him. He didn't allow the pressure really to get to him all yes. that often this year because he was like, okay, my first read's not there. Don't love my check down. I'm just going to bowl. And there were other times where, you know, oh, okay, my first read's kind of there. You know what? Let me, let me wait a little bit longer. Okay. If he wasn't hit, he would throw the ball a little bit late, maybe a little bit early sometimes, tipped up in the air, interception. This year, he was like, don't love it. B-gap's open. Let me rush through the B gap. And that was such a huge part of this offense and what Brian Dable and Mike Kafka were coaching this kid to do. I know that is an asset that not every quarterback can can use, right? Cannot use to their advantage because Daniel Jones is an athlete that can run like what, a four six or whatever the hell he runs. I think he ran like a four seven at the combine. He's much faster than that. And I also think their long ability stride runner too. Yeah, long stride runner. The ability to do that between the 20s and then actually be efficient in the red zone because you have a competent offensive coordinator who was calling plays. Those two things married together was one reason why we saw just a much better offense in 2022 because it wasn't like the Giants significantly upgraded their personnel from 2021. Yes, yeah, Saquon Barkley was back from his injury another year removed and was definitely a much more complete player than he was in 2021. And you upgraded your offensive line, but you still had some warts and some ugliness on your offensive line. But it really just came down to Daniel Jones adapting to Brian Dable's offense, them using Daniel Jones in the correct manner, not putting him into situations that he doesn't necessarily thrive in. Because one of the best situations he can be in is just to run the football. And then once you get down to the red zone, which we know because under Jason Garrett, the Giants finished 32nd and 31st in red zone efficiency, just execute. And that's something that Daniel Jones did, I would say, fairly well. There are some some gripes that I have, but fairly well, much better than it was in the two previous years. And that's, of course, a testament to coaching. Without a doubt. I mean, look, some of the most success the Giants had this year were non-designed runs from the quarterback. Those were some of their highest EPA plays. When Jones dropped back to pass the ball, didn't like what he saw on his first read, and just took off and ran the football. And those were some of the Giants' best plays. In the red zone, 
you know, they had a lot more success. It's the biggest story for why the Giants had more. And by the way, I mean, we have to call spade a spade. Giants offense wasn't good this year. It was still one of the worst in the NFL overall and still one of the least efficient in the NFL overall. The reason why it wasn't what it was in the past, where it was just dead in the water, dead last. You can't have no chance to win nine games. I mean, the Giants won nine games in a playoff game. Part of it was the offensive improvement. But the biggest reason is what you just said, Nick, the red zone improvement. That's where they went from 31st to 7th in red zone offense. And that was the difference in this season, in my opinion, overall. And a big reason why they were able to get down the damn field was just because Daniel Jones right. not liking what he saw and being like, oh, wait, I'm kind of fast. Let me use that. And then let me get down. I'm trying to think of what moment it was. I think it might have been the Dallas game. Dan, what we really started being like, oh, we're getting our asses kicked week three, Monday night football. I remember Daniel Jones just kept leaving the pocket. And that was like the only thing the Giants could do because mm -hmm. Evan Neal couldn't block Demarcus Lawrence. Nobody yeah. could block Micah Parsons, right? Except for maybe Andrew Thomas. But Micah Parsons, I think, had a couple reps this season against Andrew Thomas as well. I think that might have been in the second matchup. So Daniel Jones just used his legs. And then after that, we just saw a, a much heavier focus on play action bootlegs and just getting Daniel Jones on the run. And against Chicago, they had like six or seven true pass sets that entire game. Everything else was just play action boot. Yeah, and that was the offense early in the season. Obviously evolved to some extent at toward the end. I know now a lot of people frame it as the first half and the second half. That's not true. I mean, it was only really the the third, the fourth quarter where the offense became a pass first offense. I don't know why people are saying the second half and first half. I guess just to like, you know, how these arguments go on Giants Twitter. But yeah, I would say that, like we we talked about it. The Detroit game, you really started to see it right in the garbage well, time. Yeah, but it was all garbage time. I think they had like two passes with twenty air yards in that game and i think three plays that went for 20 plus air yards 20 or 20 plus air yards a lot but it was all garbage time. yeah, yeah exactly that's a ton man i have some stats time, right yeah i have some stats about about air yards and things like that dude like the giants and, and explosive plays but we'll get into that a little bit later yeah explosive 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 you seen that yeah God, that was so cringeworthy. That was uh, for those who didn't see Gannon, the new, uh, the old Eagles Vince Yeah, Gordon, man, now I'm the head coach of the Cardinals. I think it was Rondell Moore, right? He's the first thing he just it was very. <laughs> someone like queued it up to Michael Scott from the office. It was very Michael Scott esque. I feel like it was almost it was insanely similar. He just goes up to him and he's and he just goes pew 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 explosives explosives explosives. Yeah, You're gonna no man, speed, buddy. <laughs> if, so if I was a Cardinals fan, I'd be like, that's not it. There was an individual walking in the background of that video, Dan, and I, I wanted to know if it was Will Hernandez because it looked so much like Will Hernandez. But like, been. Will they had another video where he went up to Will Hernandez. I saw him say Will okay. Hernandez was like one of the four guys that saw him say what up to that day. So I'm sure it was Will. Okay. I was just wondering because I know he's an impending free agent if like he still goes to the building and then like does. Yeah, I guess uh, he does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think he had a pretty good year this year, according to people who are around the Arizona wow. program. I didn't watch his tape. That's devastating to hear. If he becomes a good player in the NFL, I'm not going to be happy about that. And what the hell happened if that's the case? But I don't know. I didn't watch no the tape either. But who cares? That's that's long over. That's long past due. Um, all right. Let's go into a few more pros here that I have. One that you put down that I also saw. I think this is really an eye test thing for you and me because we don't have next-gen stats. I don't think next-gen does a good job of tracking this anyway. But I think we both agreed, and we said it a lot throughout the season when we were doing the film reviews, that there was some growth. It seemed tangible to me. I mean, it's hard to have a tangible evidence on this thing, but it seemed obvious to me, I should say, in his overall velocity as a thrower, 
Now, look, there are different ways to improve your velocity in the NFL. One would be working on your lower half and working on your core and your base because you do. Th if you throw the ball right with good uh, with good mechanics from the lower half and the upper half, you are using a lot of your core and your legs to get drive into the football. And I did feel like specifically toward the end of the season, it was most noticeable to me, Nick, because at times in the past during his rookie season, maybe there were just colder games and snowier games, but I thought the ball play, uh, I'm sorry, the velocity wasn't what it was for Jones, but this season, even down the stretch run, you know, that one game where he had those three vertical shots to Slayton, Slayton dropped the one toward the end of the game. What game was that? I'm forgetting now. Might have been the first Washington where they tied him. Um, yes, I believe first it was Washington, Washington tied with three deep shots. Those three deep balls got out there on a line, heavy ball, and I just felt like the velocity overall was definitely better for Jones this year. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I would agree with that. And again, nothing tangible that we can read into that. Right. But uh, in terms of just watching the tape, and I've watched a lot of Daniel Jones, believe that when Daniel Jones was asked to make throws that he wasn't making every single game, you saw the ball kind of jump out of his hands. And also, and I'm sure we'll bring this up in a little bit, and I guess I can just transition us to there now, just the off-platform throws. Mm -hmm. There were so many just off-platform off throws in times when Daniel Jones was rolling to one direction, which was a huge part of the Giants' offense, as we already brought up. And he was able to change his arm angle or just deliver a football in a manner that we haven't seen all that often, like just jumping up in the air and kind of just doing the whole like basketball type of throw, like over the top of defensive ends who were in pursuit. So that was definitely another aspect of him throwing the football that I appreciated. Yeah, without a doubt. And that is a huge factor we're going to get into now because we already brought up the biggest, these are the two biggest areas of improvement for Jones, in my opinion, this season. The first is the pocket manipulation, the pocket presence, because that led to the low turnover rate, the yards he picked up on the ground, those drives that we were able to extend. That's number one for sure for that reason. But that one I felt, Nick, was possible to improve. I think at any point, any quarterback can improve his manipulation and pocket presence, especially with good coaching. But the ability to create off script as a thrower of the football, and that ties into what you just said. The ability to create off script as a thrower of the ball, not just as a runner of the football. That was a major area of improvement for Jones this year. 
I thought he got pretty damn good at it in the red zone. There are plays where he would escape through the B gap, but not cross the line of scrimmage and then find a receiver who worked back to the ball. We got to a point in the season where the receivers are like, we have a plan. We have a, on every single one of these scramble plays. We have a plan. That's something I never expected to really see in the Daniel Jones career arc, a quarterback who is creating off script on a consistent basis and has receivers that are so well aware of his ability now to create off script, that they now have plans for when he comes off script, those kind of like backyard football, they call it. And I've seen that a lot with the Mahomes types and those quarterback to make these plays off script more often but you didn't really see it a lot with daniel jones actually you didn't see it at all with daniel jones in his first three years i don't want to it's not a, the most ultimatum at all you probably saw it a handful or two of times that's an at all when i say at all and, and i'm talking about 10 times in three years that's at all that qualifies as at all for me you really didn't see it much at all in those first three years and you saw it a good amount last season specifically in the stretch run um Things that happened when he was moving on his rolling to his right. Now, there are a few examples rolling to his left, or I call it drifting to his left. It's like two steps. Maybe I wouldn't call it a roll. Like the Hodgins throw against Minnesota. That was a throw to the left that he made a really good throw on uh, toward the sideline, 17 yards on the field. But when rolling to his right, I felt like the velocity was much better than it's ever been when he's throwing the football. And then it led to the overall ability to create off script. It led to the overall ability to create off script. And you're right about us not seeing it in the previous two years. I think one aspect and one reason why is just because the offense was so much more tailored towards rolling him out. We didn't necessarily see that too much with Jason Garrett. I think I remember us talking about it in the win over Carolina in 2021, because remember how Phil Snow's defense was just uber aggressive, right? And they were just trying to plug gaps and they were just attacking forward. And we applauded Jason Garrett for rolling Jones out and kind of getting him on the move. But other than that game plan, I don't remember a game plan that was tailored to leveraging Daniel Jones's ability to get outside. So we didn't really see him all that often throwing from weird arm angles and jumping mm -hmm. over defensive linemen to throw the football. This game plan by Mike Kafka was tailored for that. So many plays where Daniel Bellinger was on the roll side, blocking down, blocking down, blocking down. Okay, now I'm just going to leak out and nobody was anywhere near him. We saw that a lot early on in the season and that just kept evolving. Then we just started seeing the block down, fade to the flat, have a three-level read, have a sale concept but the Giants didn't really throw that seven route probably enough, but sometimes they would when Jones was actually out of the pocket and rolled towards that side and kind of closing in on the numbers. And another thing I felt like Daniel Jones did really well when he was on the run, something that he definitely improved on, even though he didn't do it too often uh, in previous years, was he kept his eyes downfield until the last second. Him timing that, he timed it very well, right? Like he would keep his eyes downfield, keep his eyes downfield, hold those defenders in place, then use his athletic ability to pick up five, six, seven yards with his legs. And I really appreciated that trait from him as well because it showed a poise and a calmness when the bullets were flying. You nailed it, Nick. His patience on the move was a big reason and factor in his ability to become a better off-script creator with his arm. And it's also with his legs, but also with his arm. He became a guy who, when he's rolling right patiently and keeping his eyes downfield, He's now like a two-way threat for the defenders. That was the bit that was one of the biggest reasons I think they were able to create more success off script. He's become this two-way threat, and now defenders have to make the decision. Are they going to commit to Daniel Jones, who's rolling and he's moving in the direction and he's probably going to and at this point run? And if he even if he doesn't run, he's somebody who has the ability to run. Or are you going to commit to the receiver who then, if you leave open, Jones can hit for a pass? And I think one more factor in this, Nick, is I felt like in his first few years, some of those passes when he was moving to his right, and maybe this is just a confidence thing, a patience thing, the fact that it wasn't a huge part of the scheme, but I thought that some of those throws moving to his right, they would they would end up low at the receiver's legs or the ball placement would kind of just be weird and off. And I felt like that just wasn't the case as much this year.
It wasn't the case. And I have this play up for the YouTube. This is one where he doesn't roll out. He actually stays in the pocket. And for those who uh, might've been a little confused about the field side and the boundary side before Jones is throwing to the boundary side here, but this is kind of what I'm talking about. He doesn't have to be rolling out here, but you could see how he's waiting for Richie James to come open and how he steps up and then he just throws off of his back foot. Like you're not supposed to throw like this. This is not great mechanics from Daniel Jones, but look at the ball placement. He puts it right over the top of that underneath defender and hits Richie James. Look how close Trevon Diggs is from knocking this football away. Like that is a beautiful pass to the sideline to allow Richie James to drag his feet and bounce from the pocket by Daniel Jones. Yeah, it's a great throw, great example right there for sure. And a great example of his arm talent being at at worst adequate, but probably, you know, I said adequate or maybe it's a little above adequate. That's a really good arm talent throw. And there's been plenty of them. It's still, it, it's so hard for me to, to put a gauge on arm talent across the NFL. Cause like, if you look at Justin Herbert versus Daniel Jones, those arm talents aren't even comparable. Yeah. So if that's considered really good arm talent, you just, you see the noticeable difference in the velocity of those two people as throwers. Yeah, for me, it's just can you make all the NFL throws? And yep. you would imagine every starting quarterback could. They can't. They can't. Even yeah, <laughs> even the ones who have the ability to still don't, right? And yeah. Daniel Jones, I would even argue, doesn't always consistently do it. It's one of my biggest yeah. gripes with it. But I think, you know, I would say I know he can, right? Like from a physical sure. standpoint. Yes, he has all the physical traits to do so. And if you didn't know that or didn't think that we would be in the, we would end this video by saying, do not resign this guy. Let him freaking go. Because there actually are some quarterbacks who don't even fit that bill. The, the bill, you know, the, the bucket Nick just put him in, which is a true, I think, of Daniel Jones. He can make all the throws. He doesn't always do it sometimes. There's some quarterbacks in this NFL who can't make all the throws, like literally starting in the NFL. We had Taylor Heineke last year, right? We had, you know, even, I don't know, man, even some of these players like who I think throw have some things they've done better than Jones, like a Tua, for example, like throw the anticipation and throw into space. I don't really think if he was forced to be like a drop back thrower, not in a Mike McDaniel system, he could really make all those throws with the way you want him to make all those throws type of thing. So there are a lot of quarterbacks. I think if you looked across the landscape, who don't really have that as much arm talent as Daniel Jones. And that's for sure puts another pro in his bucket. Let me get to another pro. I think, this is more specific and probably not, you know, something to too much to hang your hat on too much. But I think he throws the deep digs better than most quarterbacks in the NFL. And that includes some of the high echelon, upper echelon arm talent guys. And that deep dig throw, maybe we can find one on film. I don't know if I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, Nick. We don't have too much loaded up. But the deep dig has been a throw that he's made throughout his entire career with the Giants. It spans across all of the coaching staffs. It spans across the Shermer system, the Garrett system. And now the Brian Dable system and that ability to rip that ball on those deep digs. And those are basically essentially the intermediate uh, in routes. Um, and like Nick said, what does Daniel Jones do best on these routes? He throws with anticipation, I think, and he drives the football. So the ball placement is there and the drive of the football. And on these routes, as Nick said, which I think was a really good point, the, the, the receiver makes the break and then the ball is out. It's not like he's running a crosser, so he's on that horizontal plane for a while. He's mostly on the vertical plane, and then he makes the stop, gets in and out of his break, and gets into the horizontal plane. And that's an area of the field that Jones has thrown over, I've seen him throw over linebackers in between safeties, which is really good. That's tight window. And even when that's not the scenario, he doesn't have to throw over a linebacker and a safety. I still see him delivering a heavy, compact ball on time with good velocity. And I remember bringing this up last year, I believe, with Daniel Jones. And it might even have been 2020. I think the the Giants played the Rams in 2020 and they got their asses kicked, right? Or no, they didn't get their asses kicked. That was the game where the Giants defense put them in a position to win, but Cooper Cup had a a 
like blown coverage and, and went for a touchdown. Yeah. I believe Daniel Jones in that game had a deep dig route to Darius Slayton, and he threw it so perfectly and layered it right over the top of the second-level defenders before the safety was able to really deliver a hit on Darius Slayton. And that's when I started realizing, hey, man, there's some touch over the middle of the field. Yes. And I feel like we saw that in 2020 a little bit, and we saw it a little bit more in 2021, but the Giants were just an absolute complete mess. And then we started seeing it. I don't know if consistently is the right word to use here, but when the opportunity arose, right? Because the Giants did use dagger concepts, right? And a dagger concept is simple, right? It's just a clear out from the number two, and then you have the number one is going to run a deep dig route. And I felt like when the Giants decided to dial those up against certain defenses, Jones did deliver a good ball to that wide receiver, that number one wide receiver who was kind of coming out of the break. So I'm right there with you, man. That's one of my... um I would say one of the better route concepts, one of the better routes that Daniel Jones throws in terms of deeper type of concepts. Yeah, and that's definitely a pro for me. Let's get into another pro here. And I think the number, uh, this is more specific uh, stat based, but Daniel Jones was much more efficient in the red zone this season with the new coaching staff and his ability to progress as an NFL, as an NFL quarterback. And he's been in his past in 2022. He had a plus 0.034 EPA per attempt in the red zone, 52.3% success rate, 4.4 yards per attempt, 63% completion rate on 43 dropbacks with a 12 to one touchdown to interception ratio. Now in 2021, for example, for comparison, on a similar amount of dropbacks in the red zone, 44, so just one more, he was 5-0 to zero in touchdown interception, but he had seven fewer uh, touchdowns, a 39% completion rate, 1.7 yards per attempt, a 26.7 success rate, so almost half success rate, a third of the yards per attempt, half or more than half of the, or half the completion rate, and a minus 0.37 EPA per attempt. So that increase in efficiency was one of the biggest areas from a statistical standpoint that he jumped as a passer in 2021 too. And I'll say this, not to poo-poo on any of that, because I do believe we saw some development. A lot of it was easily schemed up plays to Daniel yes. Bellinger and things like that. A lot of it was Daniel Jones stepping up into the pocket, which is a check mark in his favor, rolling to his right to extend plays and then really smart route running by Isaiah Hodgins and Daniel Bellinger. And that is also a, a huge plus to Daniel Jones. But there were instances, in my opinion, this kind of will fall into the con where Daniel Jones, it was more just, I'm going to drop back to pass. I have one read that reads not there. And there were receivers open, but he didn't necessarily know to go to that receiver, but he should have based on how the defense reacted. The one play that really comes to my mind, I don't have it dialed up right now, was the design to Lawrence Cager. Do you remember that play? Yes. I remember where Hudson was wide open. Yeah, uh, Hudson was wide open. Saquon Barkley was the uh, acted like he was going to run a uh, a screen to the outside. He was lined outside. They brought Lawrence Cager in motion and they ran him to a deep flag. And the safety and the cornerback both read it and went right to Lawrence Cager. Somebody stepped down to Saquon Barkley. Tanner Hudson was wide open on a deep crossing route from the backside. Daniel Jones had never calculated in his mind like, hey, I'm going to have Tanner Hudson open right. because everybody else reacted to Cager and Saquon Barkley. And I believe Daniel Jones just tucked the ball and ran and got tackled for like three yards. I think they kicked the field goal. And then there was also a play in week two that I remember where Daniel Bellinger was a blown coverage on this one. But um, I think it was because the the way Daniel Jones reacted, he caught the ball and looked to his left, the safety reacted to the left. And then Daniel Bellinger was wide open in the middle of the field. And he didn't see that, didn't uh, know to kind of be like, hey, that safety reacted to the one. That means Bellinger should be open or can be open. And he never put that one together either, which was a little frustrating. The most examples of Daniel Jones missing reads, or, or I would call it, you know, I don't know if I call it misreads. Let's call it 
not optimal post-snap processing, not optimal post-snap field vision would be in the red zone because these weren't the only examples. There were plenty more. And on the double moves on the vertical plane. Those are the two areas Daniel Jones, and those are outside the numbers, the double moves, but those are the two areas where Daniel Jones didn't do his best processing post-snap and seeing the field post-snap. And that's, to me, Nick, this is where, like, the whole crux of the Daniel Jones, should they keep him, should they not, is he going to win them Super Bowls, is he not, comes down to how much of 2022 was coaching, how much of it was Daniel Jones' progression as a quarterback. Because there are definite areas that we just over where he went over where he improved. He improved mightily in pocket press and pop manipulation, but part of that was coaching. He improved mightily in his ability to create off script, and that I want to give him all the credit for. And some of those even translate in the red zone, like you said, when he's on those scramble plays off script and finding Richie James or Hodgins or whoever's working back to the football. But at the same time, some of that red zone success was certainly scheme was certainly coaching because we're still not seeing too many examples in the red zone of a throw to the back pylon that drops right over the receiver's shoulder for a touchdown or multiple routes running into the end zone. The ball's thrown into the end zone. And it's caught somewhere in that back, you know, two, three yards of the end zone right before the, the end line or near the pylon or in the middle. We still don't see a lot of those. Even some of the touchdowns that were in the red zone were like, you know, Isaiah Hodgins runs a little whip route and then gets open and Jones just throws the football. He's wide open. Or, you know, they have the bunch route, the bunch with Wondell Robinson and it's like a pick play and Wondell Robinson's wide open and he just throes a touch and a wide o- to, to Wondell Robinson there. So, you know, still in the red zone, the efficiency is up. But I think, and this is the crux of it, we have trouble. We're going to have trouble figuring out how much is how much is the quarterback evolving and how much is great uh, coaching. Exactly. And I had the one play from Carolina dialed up, but the Giants did end up scoring a touchdown to Daniel Bellinger on the very next play, that really well-schemed play by Mike Kafka. But you can see he checks to his left. That safety stays put. Linebacker does not drop to a depth. And then the other safety just goes towards the numbers to take Kadarius Tony. Remember that guy? And look at Daniel Bellinger, just absolutely wide open but he just doesn't throw the football. And in the NFL, that is open there, right? You have to attack that. But Daniel Jones just ends up kind of running away and then just throwing an incomplete pass to Sterling Shepard. So like little plays like that, again, like we're nitpicking a little bit, but like if we're going to be honest here, if we're going to be honest here, like you need to be able to make those throws at a consistent basis. And I believe what you articulated was correct, man. Like him not doing that in the red zone when it's not specifically designed plays is an issue. And it's been an issue throughout his career. All right, let's transition now into maybe some of the cons of moving forward with Daniel Jones as the quarterback. And I'll start with one uh, on the kind of middle ground, and we'll work our way towards more of the more the more uh, defined and for sure cons. This one could be perceived as a pro or a con, but I think maybe long-term when you're investing in a player, it could be considered a con. And that would be that nearly half of Daniel Jones' total EPA in 2022, a season where he was very high in EPA, came from scrambles. What are scrambles? Scrambles are non-designed quarterback runs. It's when he drops back to pass, and instead he just decides to run with the football. Now, why I think this could be potentially viewed as a con is because a lot of the statistics and metrics and efficiency ratings that back up Daniel Jones having such a career year are dependent on EPA, right? And are dependent on his ability to add expected points added. And he did add them. Nick even said he got us into the red zone with those runs. But the reason why it might be a con for me is, one, it didn't show off much of what he can do as a passer. There still wasn't a lot of passing success in this offense. And two, long-term, is that sustainable, right? Is it possible for a quarterback to be racking up so much of his success as a 
player similar to what you mean. Like I'm, I haven't seen it, but I'm sure Justin Fields numbers, like 60% of his EPA was scrambles, right? Like I feel like Justin Fields numbers even higher, but like how long can you sustain that without getting injuries? Um, how long are you going to be the same athlete, right? He's 25 years old. He should be the same athlete for a minimum of three years, but is 31 year old Daniel Jones going to be running the football at the same way he's running it now, for example, or is he going to get injured? Like there's a lot more variance added when you're relying on your legs for your, for your efficiency rather than your arm. And he's only going to get older, right? Like he's not going to get younger and he'll be able to leverage that athletic ability for years to come. But as you said, it opens you up to injury and you want to see him actually make those strides as a passer, which that's where I feel like it can get a little murky because yeah, I feel like he had grown as a passer from 2021, but how much? And I think that question is fair. That question is fair. And I, I want to get into the next uh, con for me or just concern. I'll call these concerns. We could just call them concerns, concerns. I don't concerns. think that's, <laughs> I don't think that's what it's, I don't think that's what con is short for but I'm just going to say concern because it's not like these aren't definite cons. These are just kind of concerns Nick and I have about investing in a player like this. So let me say the next one for me. This is probably one of the biggest one, Nick. He had a lot of success this year, Daniel Jones. The Giants had some success offensively, not too much, but some. But part of me still wonders, Nick, how much did we actually learn about him as a quarterback as far as Ability to process in the pocket, stand in the pocket, and make throws from within the pocket. Because ultimately, when it comes down to it, that's what you have to be really good at to have sustainable success in the NFL. That's where most of your throws are coming from. That's where most of the plays are coming from. And in relation to that, a potential concern is, I still feel like, Nick, this was very, for the most part, a one-read offense for the Giants and a one-read quarterback, Daniel Jones. I hate to say it. But it's true. Now, we did plenty of examples on film of where he worked through his progressions and he did a really good job of that. But more times than not, by a wide margin, this offense was simply drop back, see what you thought you saw pre-snap as far as your read goes. Look at that read we thought we were going to have open. Is it there? No. Run the football. And that still makes him, for the most part, this season, a one-read quarterback. Yes, and I know there's going to be plenty of people who hear this and they'll be like, what are you talking about? In week seven, you broke down this plan. Blah, blah. Yes, we get that. But Dan, I, I feel like you're 100% right. It was read one area of the field, read that conflict defender. How does he react to the spot route? Is the vert open? Okay. Did anybody react to the check down? Now you could say this is more than one read, but he's just reading one area of the field. And it was typically to that boundary side, not all the time, right? But it was typically to that boundary side. If there was not an inside breaking route or a drag route, which the giants used a lot, right? They used some of those air raid type principles, which I love because it, it's basically an athletic check down who you can hit on the run when Darius Slayton is running or Richie James is running a drag route right in front of the quarterback's face. But we know, man, if that wasn't there, more often than not, Daniel Jones checked the B-gap, felt the pocket, which I did feel like he improved on this season, and he just leveraged his ability to run. And that's fine. But at the same time, if you're going to allocate $38 plus million to the quarterback position, you want him to be able to throw to every inch of the field and to attack the defense in every single manner at all three levels. And that's not something, in my opinion, that we've seen consistently enough. Exactly. What it becomes is more of a projection. This is another area where Brian Dable and Joe Shane will have to project because they don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that it's there already. 
Now, can it get there with better O-line, with better receivers, with more understanding and more experience within the same system? Sure, it's possible, but it's a projection. It's not a guarantee, and I think you defined it better than I did. Less of a one-read quarterback and more of a one-area-of-the-field read quarterback. And it comes back to a lot of what we saw Daniel Jones. When, when Daniel Jones has been at his best, his best moments in his NFL career, have come in 2019 as a rookie and 2022 with Brian Dable. What was the similarities between those two styles of offense? They were mostly read half a side, one side of the field, half high lows with Shermer and different ver- uh, variations with Dable, but it was read one area of the field. Jason Garrett tried to make him a full progression quarterback. His whole offense was read the entire field, go through your full progressions. Those two years were his worst football by far, Daniel Jones. So still what we know is, can he become a quarterback who eventually reads the full progression of the field? And then is when you see that open hole shot, he's taking them. When you see that open double route, uh, you know, double move to the go route, he's taking them. When you see this guy running open, but you wasn't expecting it because he looked first right, he's taking the guy on the left. Yes, he could get there, but it's a projection. And what we have right now is all we can work with. And what we have right now is two years of him asked to read the full field progressions with Jason Garrett and him not able to do that. And then two years of read half the field. And they had different strategies for it. Dable said, read half the field. You don't like it. Run. Shermer was like, read high, low. And he did a pretty good job with that. But to the, to the point so far, we haven't seen a quarterback who has demonstrated the ability on a consistent basis to read the full progression. And that's just something you need, I believe, to win a Super Bowl, right? Or at least to compete for a Super Bowl at a consistent level. Like if you're getting paid that much money, you need to be able to take advantage of the the vulnerabilities of the defense, which if you are allowing a defense to only defend 80% of the field, they're going to be able to hyper-focus on the Saquon Barkley's of the world or whoever the wide receiver is or the boundary side. They're going to pick up on your tendencies. And as I've already said like three times through this podcast, we've seen defensive coordinators use that against Daniel Jones. And we haven't really seen Daniel Jones be like, okay, you want to you want to do that to me? Sweet. I'm going to make you pay. There was one play against Ed Donatel's defense. So that's the Minnesota Vikings, terrible defense or Richie James. I think they actually ran the post wheel where the two runs the wheel and the one runs the in-breaking post slant, whatever the hell you want to call it. And Daniel Jones recognized the coverage laps and it was Kenny Galladay, not Isaiah Hodgins, who usually runs around. And Kenny Galladay basically ran a sloppy route, got dragged down and got in the way of the uh, defender, basically acting as a pick. And Daniel Jones recognized it and delivered the ball well to Richie James up the sideline. And when, that's when you and I were like, look, at least he's recognizing this because the week previous, he did not recognize that against Washington. So right. that's a, that's level of growth, but you need to see a lot more than just that one instance to, to feel comfortable when you're talking about this much money. Exactly. And that's the, that's the key factor here. We're going to find good examples of things. We're going to find bad examples of things, but what we need is consistency at this, in this specific regard. And that's a projection you're making here. Can he get to a consistent level? And I'm going to group a few of these together because I want to talk about just overall why this may be happening. So I think, Nick, this is less. We, we talked about, OK, Daniel Jones struggles at times throwing with ball with good ball placement when the receiver is on the horizontal plane for a long time on those crossers and those long developing or deep crossers on the mesh. OK, let's put that out there. But as far as the outside, the number throws go, Nick, I wonder how much because I think I wouldn't put this as a con. I put this somewhere in between. Part of the reason we don't see a lot of these throws past the the yard, uh, past the line. I'm sorry, the the ten yard mark, the the first down marker, and then outside the numbers because he threw thirty only thirty seven percent of his total attempts were in that range. That's insanely low. I think it was lowest in the NFL. Gets that number in a little bit, but part of the reason is I think he has adequate arm talent to throw outside the numbers. Nick, I don't think it's 
a pro, though. I don't think it's elite arm talent. And I wonder how much of this is he's not reading it right. How much of it is he doesn't trust his arm to get it out there. That's what I'm trying to figure out, like why these throws aren't being made. My take is yeah. I think he has the arm talent to do so, but I think he needs to anticipate it a little bit. And I don't okay. believe he's that great of an anticipatory thrower at this point. So if you don't have the elite Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert arm talent where you can kind of wait to that finest final second to just bullet it into your wide receiver, then you need to anticipate it a little bit more. If your arm talent's a little bit lesser than quarterbacks like that. And I just don't think he anticipates too well when there's that much field to cover specifically to the field side. And I think that's a great call, Nick, for the reason of let's look at the Miami dolphins as an example, right? Daniel Jones has way more arm talent than two attacks or two, a tongue of a low. No, I like that. We're sticking with that. Two attacks, two attacks. He has way more arm talent than Tua Tags. But Tua found a lot of success in the areas of the field that Daniel Jones didn't find success in earlier this season for his concussions simply with one factor, Nick, anticipatory throwing. That's it. It's getting the ball out before the receiver gets out of his break. It's throwing the ball to space, not throwing the ball to the receiver. It's throwing it where you think the receiver will get to. And ultimately, Nick, what scares me the most when it comes to Daniel Jones here, Nick, and I'm curious to get your take on this because we're on the con section, is we saw Tua with the ability to do it without arm talent with just purely anticipatory throwing. But ultimately, Nick, how much of a factor is improved wide receiver talent and improved offensive line talent when it comes to anticipatory throwing, right? Because at times, the Dolphins' offensive line, by the way, was not very good last year it was terrible the year before they made some improvements but they weren't a good old line Taron Armstead was good when he played he was injured a bunch there are many issues there but when you're an anticipatory thrower no matter where you're using the field the middle of the field outside the numbers down the field when you're an anticipatory thrower you're getting the ball out before the offensive line can break down and you're getting the ball out before the receivers in and out of his break so how much is if you slam talent through the your, your throat at receiver and offensive line how much is that really impacting the ability to throw with anticipation? I think trust could impact it a little okay. bit, but you're right. A lot of that is going to be on the quarterback, right? And obviously an improved offensive line, it's going to give you more time. But I do think there might be avenues to where Daniel Jones can develop that with more comfortability because this kid has had several different offensive coordinators right. and horrendous play calling and all of that. But we didn't really see it that much this year. And now he is up to being paid because the Giants declined his fifth year option. And on the screen right now, I have one example of what we're talking about. And I wish this wasn't Saquon Barkley down at the bottom of the screen because we've seen it when it wasn't just Saquon Barkley. But this is an empty formation, a third and three. And the Washington football team or the commanders, whatever the hell they're called right now, they're going to run an inverted cover two, meaning that middle of the field, close safety pre-snap is going to drop down. And then two cornerbacks are going to drop to take deep half responsibility. But look at what happens to the field side. Like Jack Del Rio was just saying, you're not going to throw to the field side. So I'm not even worried about it. Like Saquon Barkley is just chilling here and he's tasking this apex defender to work from well inside the numbers all the way out to the number one, because Jack Del Rio just didn't respect the fact that Daniel Jones was going to attack the field side. And we saw right. that several times in this Washington game. This is the and second the Washington game, game before and, in, in, and in the first, we saw it a little bit with Ed Donatel, but again, that that defense was a was an absolute mess anyways and had so many coverage lapses. But when when teams are doing this to you and you're not making them pay, which the Giants really didn't make them pay, right? There's an issue there, right? They're like there, there should be a question. This isn't being a Jones hater. This isn't anything like that. This is a legitimate gripe that you have with a quarterback who is set to make a hefty, hefty contract for your team. 
I completely agree with you. And that's something that they're going to, I'm sure, you know, he's talked about this with the coaches. They've discussed this on tape. They know, they know the issue there, but it all comes down to anticipation or this isn't, this isn't even an example, maybe as much of anticipatory throwing. This is more just post-snap processing, understanding leverage, understanding, uh, you know, where these D backs are and what you can find based on that, what's going to be open. But I do wonder, man, when it all comes down to it, like how much is an offensive line upgrade and wide receiver upgrade going to make an impact? Because when I watch two of the balls out before the offensive line can even matter on a play. And in a lot of ways, the balls out before the receiver is even into his open space. A lot of the times Hill and Waddle weren't even open when the ball was released. And that ultimately come when it comes down to it, you said it earlier with Drew Brees, Drew Brees was a six foot quarterback with pretty good arm talent, but toward the end, it was not very good at all. And why did he win so consistently? Two things, really anticipatory throwing and post snap processing. And so when you have those, you're basically a lock to be the type of guy that can win you Super Bowls often. But right now, I'm not so sure Jones hasn't. He's shown again. He's shown flashes. We've broken it down on tape. There are examples. We're not looking for examples here and there. We're looking for consistency every game, almost every snap, because you're never going to get every snap. Even Breeze and Brady don't do it every snap, but almost every snap. They're processing this thing well, and the ball's coming out with anticipation. And right now, Jones doesn't have that, and it's a major con in his profile moving forward. And I would say the one route that he's shown it on at a more consistent level than other routes, and I still don't think it's consistent enough, would be those deep dig routes yeah, deep that dig. we were yeah. talking about, where he can feel out those underneath defenders and fit the ball yeah. before the safety comes down. But you're not really seeing it on those deep vertical shots, those deep posts and things like that, yeah. right? Like anticipating where that defender is and where he can get to and throwing your receivers open. And I feel like you can add Jordan Addison, you can add Jalen Hyatt, you can add whatever wide receiver to allow him to excel in that standpoint, but he still needs to be the guy to process it and pull the trigger and that's where i think you and i are a little hesitant right now just because we haven't seen it yet so where we're most hesitant it's the biggest part of his projection moving forward and it's the hardest thing to project as well uh, and that's going to be their toughest i bet that's their toughest decision right now because it's not yeah. like we didn't see times on film where daniel jones should have thrown the ball downfield and he didn't see it or like you said in the red zone with hudson and other plays and we even saw that one example against seattle where it looked like brian dable looked at Slayton wide open, then looked back to Jones and was like, what the, what the hell happened here? Like, how do you not process this and get the ball to Slayton wide open on this double move? Um, so yeah, it's, it's something that's, that's looming large right now with Daniel Jones and a big part of his projection overall. Uh, let's now get into yeah, several, by the way, against Seattle, not to cut you off, yeah. but he had an overthrow on a wheel route in the first quarter. He had the, um, the design that design play to Lawrence Cater that was missed to, oh, yeah. Hudson was Seattle. He the first play of the fourth quarter, the third and nine, where he checked it down to Myrick. I think that's the play you were just referencing. Darius Slayton was wide open, wide just open. burnt Tariq Wollen on that play. And then he also had another play to Slayton later when the game was kind of out of reach, but it was a third and 10. Yeah. And Darius Slayton just blew past a lot of players. I think it was a safety and a cornerback and had like five yards of separation. Jones just didn't pull the trigger despite actually having a pocket to do so at that time. And that's another thing, man, not to get off on a tangent, but sure. Dan going through a lot of the tape that I went through recently, 
I realize how important Darius Slayton was to this offense. Mm. The Slayton was the reason for so many of Daniel Jones's explosive plays. And so many of the times Daniel Jones didn't pull the trigger was with Darius Slayton using his speed. So that's one thing. If you can upgrade over Slayton, maybe that will happen at a more consistent rate and Jones can feel a little bit more comfortable. But that seems like just such a like a stretch, right? Like that is an excuse for Daniel Jones. Like sometimes you need to lay the, the fault at the feet of the quarterback. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's get into a few of the stats. And then uh, let me actually do a couple. Yeah, no, we'll get into the whole 30,000 foot view stuff after. 30,000 foot view stuff is going to be how we wrap this thing up with. We'll talk that. We'll talk our conclusion then. But the 30,000 foot view stuff, we'll talk about allocating this type of money to a quarterback and um, not only allocating this type of money to a quarterback in a salary cap contract, but also allocating a certain amount of guaranteed money to a five-year deal that you would then push back. So before we get into any of those financials and that stuff, I want to give a couple stats that kind of highlight some of the cons we've discussed. So the first one will be, despite having two extra games this season, Giants played in two playoff games, the Giants ranked dead last in total explosive passing plays for the season. They had 32 plays of 20-plus yards. Uh, Falcons were 31st, and they had 37 plays in two fewer games. Seven of the 31 explosive pass, pass plays, uh, Davis Webb had two of them. That went for 20 plus yards. Only three of them were 20 air yards. And that was including the two that came from Davis Webb. Um, the seven were the Sterling Shepard 65 yard touchdown throw, the Darius Slayton 37 yard touchdown throw in week seven, uh, Detroit garbage time 24 yard pass to Darius Slayton, a 44 yard pass to Slayton in week 12 against the Washington, I believe, a 55 yarder that I think was the one, was that the one where it was just thrown at the line of scrimmage and Slayton just housed it? I think that was that one, that 55 yarder. Um, I so. so that's, yeah. Um, so that's not air yards, kind of just like a throw around the line of scrimmage. Receiver does the rest, but a good job to get the ball out. Um, week 16, a 33 yard pass to Richie James. And then also in that game, a 29 yarder to Hodgins. That was the game, obviously, versus the Vikings, where they did start to get something going there as far as the passing games go. But, you know, you hear that whole breakdown. There's not a lot of explosive plays in, in that first season. No, no, not a lot at all. You're talking about seven that were more than. 20 yards. And then, like you said, three that were 20 yards on the dot. So a lot of those were Slayton, right? <laughs> a lot of those right there are Slayton. You have one to James, you have one to Hodgins, but and then the one to Shepard, which happened in week one, which was somewhat of a, you just got one-on-one -on -one situation. So Shepard ran a good route. Daniel Jones put the football out there for him, but you need a little bit more ability to create explosive plays. And as we've said on tape, there were instances where Daniel Jones could have pulled the trigger and he just didn't. He was just a little bit hesitant right. to do so. Yeah, and that's part of the profile right now. Um, a couple more stats to go over as we project moving forward. This one really go, you know, this one really touches on what the offense was because I think, as far as Jones goes and and extending him and moving forward with him, a lot of it is projection, but it's not all projection, right? The one thing we don't have to project is that he had game winning drives. He led the offense. They were better with him. They won games, and I, some of these games they won because of him, in my opinion. Some maybe not, but some they won because of him. The product was there as far as the wins and losses go, but it was done in such a way that requires projection. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is it was done in a way that doesn't, and we're about to go over it with these stats, but it was done in a way that wasn't really through the air, right? It wasn't really throwing the football. And that's where the projection comes in because moving forward, Nick and I are very staunch in our belief that 
The only way for Daniel Jones to live up to this contract if they give it to him is that he's going to have to be a consistent passer. It's not always going to be just he can run like this for the rest of his career. So to do that, you have to show more consistency and you have to show more of an ability to pass the football. And they didn't show that in 2022. So here are the numbers. Um, This is courtesy of Warren Sharp of Sharp Football Analysis. He says, Daniel Jones's numbers when passing on third down were terrible. This is his opinion that that terrible line was his opinion i'll give you numbers after this don't i just don't want you to think that was me saying that um he says joan averaged a minus 0.16 epa per attempt and a 36.6 percent pass rate when throwing the football on third and fourth downs and that doesn't mean when they drop back to throw this takes out all of his scrambles and what he did as a runner on those places just when he actually decided to throw the football he said both were career lows his completion percentage was 56 percent also a career career low by five percent despite the fact that his air yards per attempt were just 7.1 a full two yards shorter than in 2021 so in that that means on third and fourth down throws Daniel Jones, the ball only went seven yards on average in the air on third and fourth down throws. So again, as we talked about before, not many throws past the sticks. As a result of the low completion rate, coupled with the low target depth, his passes averaged just 6.0 yards per attempt, exactly 2.5 yards fewer than 2021 for Jones. He says out of 47 quarterbacks who played in the NFL last year, Jones was 44th in percentage of throws to travel beyond the first down marker on third and fourth downs, 37%, 42nd in yards per attempt, 41st in target depth, 39th in completion rate, 33rd in first down conversion rate. And remember, he converted first downs of his legs. This is just when he threw the ball. And 26th in EPA per attempt. That was very Midwestern sounding of you. You said 26th. 26th. That was your Wisconsin that came out there. (laughs) But honestly, I would say there were plenty of moments throughout the year where I felt like Daniel Jones stepped up with his arm. And I think a lot of those situations happened to be, and I don't have any stats to back this up, third and 15s, right? And plays like that where he converted and then it led to a touchdown and it led to a Giants win. And those were huge moments. But looking at the entirety of the situation, it doesn't appear, according to Warren Sharp, that he was all that effective in these situations. And these are real stats from Sharp. I don't think he's making these up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course. And I think some of that has to do with the wide receivers. Maybe a little bit more of it Mm -hmm. has to do with the fact that Daniel Jones was under pressure a lot in those situations, I'm imagining. But at the same time, those stats are pretty ugly when you look at them just to take them at face value. Yeah, and it's not like those stats don't take that context into account, in my opinion, because those are stats across the every quarterback who played in the NFL last year. Not every quarterback had a good offensive line or good receivers or all the all the usual stuff we hear um, when kind of trying to uh, put into context Daniel Jones' struggles as a passer on third and fourth down. But it was interesting to me to see that he was so much better as a passer on third and fourth down in 2021 versus 2022. That I did not expect to see. I didn't expect him to be very high in these ranks in general, but I did not expect to see a better passer. Um, But obviously the Giants saw that too, and they recognized it, and they came up with a solution. Run the ball. Scramble. Jake the (laughs) B-gap. Just get out of here. Kick up yards with your legs. It's just a matter of, is that sustainable long-term? And that's where the projection comes into play. All right, Nick, let's talk a little bit about the money side of this, and then let's get to our conclusion on what we would do. So the money side of this, which I also kind of fit into the con section just because it's interesting, is immediately if the Giants do give Daniel Jones a long-term contract that is about 40 million AAV, let's just say. Let's say that's the magic number, 40. I think he's camp purportedly wants 45. The Giants want to do 37. Let's say 40 or 41 or 42 is the magic number, somewhere between 40 and 42 per year. And in addition to that, 100 million guaranteed. 
let's say it is, maybe it's 120. I don't know how the structure is going to be. I hope it's lower on that regard, but maybe 100 million guaranteed. What they're going to do after that is what every team does, and they're going to spread that contract out, which means some bigger cap hits down the line and guaranteed money down the line. So immediately upon signing that deal, Nick, he actually has to become an outlier if, if, he only has to become an outlier if you don't believe he can evolve and develop in his later years into an elite quarterback. If you believe that he can project to be an elite quarterback, and I know some Giants fans do, some Giants fans say, all you got to do for Daniel Jones is get him receivers and offensive line, which, by the way, is so much harder to do than people seem to make it out to be. Like, I don't know what these people think. Like, you just build a super team? Like, then, like the Niners did it, sure. Who else has done this? And who? How can and then they keep it consistently? No. These dudes want contracts. They, they leave, but... I guess if they can just hit that miracle where you build the best receiver core in the NFL and the best O line, they believe he can be an elite quarterback. So if he does become elite, he doesn't have to be an outlier. But if he just becomes a top 10, top 15 quarterback type player, he has to be an outlier because since the in the in the salary cap era, no, I think I believe let me let me try to find this stat out. I'm losing this, but I'm pretty sure that no quarterback who wasn't on their co- uh, rookie contract and is not considered elite. So this is a subjective argument. I'm reading it right now. But, you know, we can all kind of agree Patrick Mahomes is elite. Josh Allen is elite. You know, like Joe Burrow is elite. We know what elite is, right? So if Daniel Jones doesn't get to that level, there's actually no examples besides Brad Johnson of a quarterback on his second contract who's not elite winning a Super Bowl. So there are examples of like rookie contract deals. That happens all the time. Quarterbacks win on their rookie deals. But this is why a lot of people are not interested in re-signing Jones for any kind of money, 37 or 45 on a long-term basis, because they believe the best way to win the NFL is to, is to get a quarterback on a rookie contract. And if he's not elite, move on and try to find the next one until you do find the elite one. Now the chiefs are a good example of winning with a quarterback on a, on a second contract, but one Patrick Mahomes is insanely elite, the best quarterback in the NFL. And two, they did something that no one really considers when thinking about how were the chiefs able to win a super bowl in the salary cap hour? How are they able to stay so competitive? They had insane drafts back to back, right? Like, right? What'd you say? I said exactly. I was just about to say that, but I wanted to know. I didn't know if that's where you were going, yep. and I was like, dude, look at some of the guys that they hit on. Just and that doesn't happen draft. ever. Like, you're not going to hit a Trey Smith in round six. You're not going to hit like any. Leo Chanel was the highest graded rookie linebacker. They got him like pick a hundred, and that's like down the list of hits for their drafts recently. You know, like they're not going to. It's very hard to hit in the draft. Like the Chiefs have hit in the draft in back to back years during this era where they're already paying the quarterback. So you're really lowering Why I put this in the con section, Nick is you're really narrowing that margin of error when you pay the quarterback on that second deal. And now he really has to become more of the reason why you guys are successful. When you have the quarterback on the rookie contract, the team can play this much of a role, in my opinion, in the success. I'm trying to show this on the YouTube. It's the dumbest thing I've ever done maybe on this, but that's probably not true. I've done a lot of dumb things, but the margin for error is so much wider when you have that quarterback on the rookie contract, because the rest of the team can, can carry the load. But when you have that quarterback on that second deal and it's 40 mil plus against the cap, let's say it only ends up being 20% of the cap, like the DAC deal is for this year, 17 to 20%. That quarterback still has to do so much more of the heavy lifting because you don't have the cap space to allocate to improve around him. Now he has to become so much more of the reason why you're competing for a Super Bowl every year. 
Dude, look at some of these players that the Chiefs hit on. They have two seventh-round picks in Isaiah Pacheco and Watson, who were huge contributors right. this season, not to mention Trey Smith was a sixth-round pick the year before. You brought up Leo Chanel as a player who was just absolutely incredible for them this year, specifically down the stretch of the year. And you also have, I think, Joshua Williams, who played a role. Right. Brian Cook, who was a second-round pick, the safety, I believe it was out of Cincinnati. So he played mean, good at the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're just knocking these picks out of the park. There's not, like you said, man, there's just not a lot of margin for error once you give that quarterback contract out. And if right. that quarterback is a whiff, like look at some of the teams that have whiffed on quarterbacks, yet they've given those quarterbacks huge contracts, like Jared Goff, who was able to lead a team to the Super Bowl. But I think we can all agree he wasn't the primary reason why they were in the Super Bowl, right? Like they had stars on the defensive side of the football and they right. had a wonderkin as a head coach and Sean McVay, right? So like... Right. That that's, and his that's what wasn't I, known as much around the NFL at that point. The defense coordinators didn't have as much film on that. Yeah, now that system has proliferated and it's yeah. all over the NFL at this point, man. Yeah, exactly. So and the other thing with that is guaranteed money will tie the Giants to Jones long term. So if he doesn't progress in the ways we talked about with anticipatory throwing and post snap processing and you know throwing the ball outside the numbers consistently, well now you have him under contract later. That one I'm less concerned about because I think the cap's going to go up enough to the point where like they can just cut him at some point if it doesn't work out and they'll take like a, a decent dead cap hit but not like a crazy going to kill yourselves dead cap hit. Like, you know what I mean? Like at that point if that doesn't work out with Jones and he bottoms out, they might have like a top 10 pick at that point. They could just draft a rookie quarterback. So I don't worry as much about that one personally. Where this all gets interesting for me, and we'll start getting into the economics, like the nitty gritty yeah. really shortly, but Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow are going to be set to possibly get paid this season. Mm -hmm. And their contracts will end up being a baseline next year if the Giants decide to use the franchise tag on Daniel right. Jones. And if Daniel Jones does take those steps that we hope he can take, that price tag is going to be so much higher than if the Giants were to just sign him right now. Almost no matter what happens, that is the biggest reason why, and that's a great point. But almost no matter what happens, and this is part of the reason why some people want that five-year deal, if they sign him next year versus this year, it's going to cost more next year, almost no matter what. With the cap jumping and just with more rookie, more quarterback contracts for these agents to kind of bounce off. Right now, Daniel Jones' agent is using two contracts right now to try to get this Jones contract done. One, the Kyler Murray deal, which sucks because it was such a bad offer at the time by Arizona. Yeah. And it's really effing over the Giants right now. And two, the Dak Prescott deal. Those are the two deals. And this, the Dak Prescott deal is the interesting one, too, from the negotiation standpoint. Because the agent can be like, look, Dak Prescott. Had a really bad playoff game. He threw a lot of interceptions this year. How good is Dak Prescott? Is Daniel Jones already at the level of Dak Prescott? Will he get to that level within two years? Will he get to above that level within two years? Well, then you better pay him what Dak Prescott is making. Or And if we think he's going to get to above that level, you better pay him more. And that's what the agent is pushing, those two quarterback contracts. So then next year you enter it, and now the contracts that you're talking about, Nick, now the agent is going Joe Burrow. Justin Herbert making 55 million a year, 50 million a year. These are the contracts now that we're pushing for. So you're right. And that begs a question. What the hell did the giants do, Dan? So yeah, let's come to our conclusion right now on what both of us would do if we were in the position and you can then give your explanation as to why. So I'll start with you, Nick, if you had the option right now, what would you do? I think I would use the franchise tag. And I, and I understand that it could burn you a little bit later on. The cap's going up every year, which is good. I think it jumped about $20 million this season, and that's excellent. But I believe the franchise tag was essentially made for this exact situation that the New York Giants are finding themselves in. You have a quarterback or you have a player who you like 
but you're not 100% certain on. So slap that franchise tag on them. You can deliberate back and forth and see if you can come to some sort of short-term deal that won't cripple you in the future if Daniel Jones does not end up working out. I'm not confident that that's going to happen, especially if the number is north of 40. We've heard 45. I think that's just a number that is thrown out there by Jones's camp, and then it's going to be talked down, and it will be closer to maybe that Dak Prescott number, which is 40, which I still feel like is a lot. But I understand if you are betting on the traits and you're betting on what he can become, and you're betting on the fact that, as we brought up a little bit earlier, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert are going to get paid, then it won't look as bad later on if he does end up hitting. But I still think I am in the camp of that franchise tag, and I think that franchise tag is around for the purpose of these types of situations. Yeah, I think you eloquated it well, and maybe not a surprise at this point, but I am on board with what Nick's plan would be. Now, I would use the non-exclusive franchise tag on Jones, and in a, in a moment here, we'll wrap up by just going over the details from uh, Joel Corey, who works for CBS Sports. He wrote a good article on this of what those two tags mean and everything like that. Um, but I would do the non-exclusive tag for a multitude of reasons. But the first would be that under the non-exclusive franchise tag, a quarterback or a player then has the option to negotiate with other teams. And if that team comes to a contract agreement with that player on the open market, the Giants then have the opportunity to either match that contract or give that player away. And that play, and then now the Giants get the the team that gives that player away would get two first round picks back for Daniel Jones. Why do I like this idea of non exclusive versus the regular franchise tag, the exclusive one? Well, if you let him negotiate, this is just something I was kind of like a. This may not even be right, so somebody has to kind of fact check this, Nick. But I was thinking along the lines of, if you let him negotiate with other teams on a non exclusive tag, those teams can't really make the same kind of offer the Giants can make because they know. Not only do they have to sign with that contract, well, they also have to give two first-round picks. So they're probably going to start with a lower number, and they're probably going to be willing to give him a lower number. So then he comes back to the Giants. His new number is not anywhere near what he was originally asking for the Giants. Now the Giants gain back some leverage, I think, in their original. Because if they put the exclusive tag on Jones, I think ultimately this is the type of team that would then just sign him before the season. It's not what we would do. Me and Nick would both – not only are Nick and I putting the franchise tag on Jones, we're, we're – playing the season out with the franchise tag, correct? Jake? I don't want to speak for you. Is that what you meant by it? Yeah. I mean, you can talk it over, but I wouldn't be willing to, at least right now, entertain like a long-term 40 plus million dollar sure. deal, like five years is what I'm talking about. Sure. So we're, we're assuming in our, in our perfect plan, they're, they're, they're making Jones play out the season on the franchise tag. But in the same scenario, if you do the non-exclusive tag, he comes back, he says, all right, this is what I'm getting from the open market here. Maybe there wasn't as much interest as we just kind of were guessing. Now you're not bidding against yourselves anymore. You have a baseline and maybe you can come down to an agreement closer to where you guys started. And by you guys, I mean the Giants. And now you can go with that five-year deal, right? Because now you feel a little bit more confident. You're not allocating as much guaranteed money. You're not allocating as much money. You feel there's kind of a wider margin for if Jones does reach the peak you expect him to from objection standpoint. Now you're getting a better deal and value on Jones. So I do think that ultimately the franchise tag is the best call, especially non-exclusive, especially because for me, Nick, and this goes into another standpoint, like if the Giants do sign into a five-year deal, Nick, I am in the belief that I want them to front load the deal, not back load the deal, which they're planning to likely do, which is back load so they can have more cap space. Now I want them to front load the deal. I don't need players this year, personally. I'm not I'm not one of those Giants fans like, upgrade now immediately wide receiver and offensive line. I'm one of those Giants fans who's like, 
Let's do this thing normally. Let's let it come to you. Let's not try to find, let's not force spots. Let's find the spots. Let's let the spots naturally, organically come to us where we can upgrade this roster. So I'm not thinking this is a Super Bowl window roster that needs cap space now. I'd rather get the cap, the, the guarantee money out of the way now on a five-year deal and then have a potential bargain Jones contract down the line. And that works the same way as the franchise tag number, right? Like if we give him the tag and we make him play out the tag, the Giants, that's the we here. The Giants make him play out the tag. They're not going to have much cap space for this year. It's going to be 32 point something million. They only have 40 something now. They're going to restructure Leonard then, which I'm, I'd am i rather do. I See, I'd rather push back Leonard money. He's a 28-year-old defensive tackle. I think I has a baseline that I know is at least pretty good, Nick. Then push back Jones money, a quarterback who can easily bottom out potentially. Like I don't want to say easily, but there's a chance for him to bottom out that's way higher than defensive tackle bottoming out, in my opinion. So I'd rather push back that cap pit to create cap space and then leave Jones on the more He's playing for this year. He has to prove himself again. It's a tougher schedule, but worst case scenario, they can get out of that if they really need to without much of a financial burden down the line. I don't even think you really need to preface it and say like, I'm not saying it's easily he could bottom out, but look at it like this. If he doesn't develop, if he's that same quarterback right. that we saw this year throughout the entirety of that contract, that's a bad contract. Yes. That's a bad contract. He needs to develop in the areas that we mentioned throughout this podcast to be worth that amount of money. And some people will listen to that, Nick, and be like, you're wrong, Nick. That's not a bad contract. He's only going to make like the 13th most money or the 12th most money by that point. And he's definitely going to still be. He was because you said if he's just what he was in 2022, he's like the 12th or, or, you know, he was probably better than what that would pay the 14th, 15th. But Nick and I aren't looking at it like that. And we never have and we never will on this podcast. If that's how you want to look at your franchise, you are allowed to. It's a free world. And you are, I give you all the, you know, do whatever you want, but Nick and I aren't playing to get a little bit of value or like the 12th or 13th best quarterback. We don't want Tannehill. We don't want cousins. We don't want car situations. We want consistent Super Bowl competitors from the quarterback position. That's what we want here. And in order to get that, he needs to take a jump. So I don't care if he's like being paid the 16th most, but we feel like he's the 12th best quarterback in the NFL, but they're still not making any real progress towards a Super Bowl on a consistent basis. That's nothing to us. So that's, I think, what you meant by that, Nick, because I know it could still end up being a value, quote unquote, based on like power and all this stuff, but we're looking for like a mega value or we're looking for the jump. We're looking for the jump. Exactly. Yeah. And I hope we articulated that throughout this entire podcast. Yeah, because otherwise we would personally rather have a rookie quarterback who you don't know anything about but isn't being paid much than the guy you know is, is never going to make the who could potentially make the jump than the guy you know isn't. So, Which is something you've said for years, Dan. You don't want to yeah. be trapped in quarterback purgatory with the Jared Goffs of the world or the Kirk Cousins of the world. Where What is your upside? You want that upside. You want to compete, actually, realistically compete for those Super Bowls. And can Daniel Jones get to that point? Yeah, I think there is a path in the future where Daniel Jones can get to that point. Was he there this past year? No, I don't think on right. a consistent basis, at least, but he did take a lot of steps to make us at least believe that there's a path to where he can get there. You absolutely just nailed it there. It's a good place to close off. We are only interested in giving him the franchise tag because both Nick and I believe he can get to that level. Why do we believe that? He's shown flashes of it. Why else do we believe that? All the things we went over in the pros. And the final thing here for me is some people might listen to this podcast and be like, it didn't sound like you were totally convinced on Daniel Jones. So why would you be willing to do the franchise tag? And and I think even for you and I, Nick, we would prefer a five-year deal over just letting him walk. Or at least I would. What were you, where were you on that? I don't want to speak for you. Yeah, I think it would depend on how the contract is is structured. And I'm not an 
expert with uh, structuring contracts. And I've heard a lot of people who are smarter than me be like, hey, a lot of NFL contracts are really, there's a lot of like ways you can get out of it. I I don't really fully understand all of the nitty gritty details, but there was ways that you can get out of it. Like if it was constructed a la a Derek Carr type of contract, then I would certainly be for that. But if you're talking about, hey, five years and you can't get out of it, everything's backloaded, you're screwed towards the back end of the contract and you just got to have this quarterback for your five years, I'm not about that. Yeah, agreed. If they were, I, and I hope they wouldn't do it that way. But I, I guess I'll try to articulate this in the way that really is. This is the ultimate thing for me, and like why I want to keep Daniel Jones on this team moving forward, no matter how they have to do it. I think overall, I look at this thing as like asset allocation and assets. Right? What I have here, what the Giants currently have on not on their roster, but the potential to resign, they might let go, they might resign Daniel Jones, is an asset that's twenty five years old. He's six foot five. He has the frame, he has the speed, and he has the arm talent. He has literally all the physical tools to be a really good quarterback in the NFL. Now, I look around the NFL, and I look around college football, and I don't know when the Giants are going to get another opportunity to have somebody with all the physical tools to be their quarterback, right? That's what, in the end, that's the biggest reason why I don't want to let Daniel Jones go, and I want to minimum franchise. No, I prefer to franchise tag him, but at minimum, bring him back in any way possible because there just aren't that many quarterbacks alive in college football and high school right now who have that skill set and who have the physical tools. And I don't know when the next time the Giants are going to get their hands on one of them is going to be. You just got to do the cost benefit analysis, though, of the money, because that's what it yeah. all comes down to. It's all about the economic. Daniel Jones was on that rookie deal, or even you know slightly more than that rookie deal, like twenty five, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. If it was like that, yeah, hundred percent, I'm willing to roll that dice. But when you start talking to the forties range, it, it does okay. start to get cheese. And then you know we keep bringing this up, but it's fact, reality of the Giants. You're gonna have to give these huge contracts to guys who are on your roster, a lot Andrew Thomas mm-hmm. and a Dexter Lawrence, possibly Xavier McKinney. So you have to consider that as well, and you just got to look. Look at the overall roster. It's it's not a great roster right now, and the Joe Shane era is going to have to start really hitting home runs through the draft to to really complete this roster. Which is another, I think, way we or another aspect of this that we haven't really brought up. But at the end of the day, I, I do want Daniel Jones on the team. I'm not saying I don't want Daniel. I just don't want to cripple the Giants' cap health in the future over the next half decade for a player that I'm not fully sold on, although I am intrigued by because he showed a lot of signs of development among a competent coaching staff. Yeah. And I think it's a totally fair thing when you start to think about like how much money you're allocating there. I also do wonder though, when it comes to an asset like Daniel Jones, like as long as he doesn't take like a massive step backwards, Nick, let's say just like the first couple years of this con, let's say they do the five-year deal. For example, I'm just going to do a hypothetical real quick to wrap this up. As I know, we already passed that. I said we were gonna, we weren't gonna go more than ninety minutes. We could literally talk three hours or four hours on Jones, but we're trying to keep it ninety minutes. We were close, but hypothetical, he plays the first two or three years out of this contract, and he's pretty much what he was this season. Let's say, give or take. Next year, schedule is harder. They'll make the playoffs. The year after, they make the playoffs again. They win a wild card game, then they lose, or they lose a wild card game. But either way, they're not a real Super Bowl contender yet. I still think in year three, if he's still that there's trade value for Jones. And that's what it comes down to for me too. When I, when I talk about like the overall, why I want to keep Jones, I feel like he's an asset to a roster because even at that point, we've seen some, and I wouldn't think that, you know, normally, but man, we see some wild trade compensation for quarterbacks across the NFL. Darnold got back a second round pick. Uh, Freaking Wentz got back multiple picks across multiple times of failures. Like, 
in the end, like we could get to that point in two or three years, and it may not be working out exactly how the Giants envision as far as being a Super Bowl contender consistently, but we could still get to that point, look around the NFL, and there's like eight to 12 teams, or let's even just say six to eight teams that are like, holy crap, we have nothing at quarterback. There's no one in the draft near our pick that has a physical tool set that we believe can be an NFL quarterback consistently. Let's just go out and try to get Daniel Jones, see if we can fix him in our system or something like that. Yeah, I think the quarterbacks who have been traded for in recent memory need to start, or Daniel Jones needs to get to that that level, right? Like the Matt Stafford. Matt Stafford is more established than Daniel Jones was when the Detroit Lions traded him to the Rams. Absolute success. Tom Brady goes without saying. The Russell Wilson debacle, we can even put that on the back burner. That was a really weird type of situation. But then you have the guys you brought up, the Sam Darnolds, the Carson Wentz's of the world. Is Daniel Jones closer to those players or is he closer to the Matt Stafford's of the world right now? And I'm not 100% certain you would have to kind of survey, get Mike Sando to survey the entire league to see exactly how the league feels about that. But I would imagine they're not probably close to Matt Stafford. He's probably closer to Carson Wentz and Sam yeah. Darnold, albeit I think he's more respected than those two. Yeah, and for sure. And that, and that would obviously impact the value. But it'd be interesting to see because I do think worst case scenario, they'll be able to get some kind of pick back for Daniel Jones as long as he doesn't bottom out. Exactly. And the fact that those trades were failures that could drive that market down for True. other teams. It depends. It, I mean, it all depends on the best. It, it should drive the market down, but I just think the quarterback desperation is so thirst. The thirst for quarterback yeah. is insanely. Like, there's just nothing out there and there's not much signs that it's going to get any better because the college game is so different than the NFL game. And it's not helping in my opinion, these quarterbacks develop. No, it's not. So it's going to be interesting, man. But, you know, I'm hoping Daniel Jones can take that step forward that we discussed throughout this podcast. Definitely yes. a world where he can. But sure. it's it's not an easy decision, and I do not envy Joe Shane right now. No. And so final conclusion here, we'll wrap up with this. Both Nick and I are assigning the franchise tag to Daniel Jones, and mine is non-exclusive. I don't know if yours would be non-exclusive, would yeah. it be? Yeah. So both yeah. of us are assigning the non-exclusive franchise tag to Daniel Jones, and we're not only assigning it to help with aid and give more time for negotiations. We would have Daniel Jones play out his entire 2023 season on the franchise tag. Thanks for joining the Big Blue Banter podcast. This has been a Daniel Jones contract breakdown. We will have more content coming your way. Nick and I are starting to dive a little bit more into the prospects. I've got two guys that Nick's already worked on on my radar right now. The first is Quinton Johnson, the wide receiver from TCU. I've watched a few of his games already. I haven't watched a few games of the other receiver, but I'm already a little bit more interested in him, and that's Jalen Hyatt, the wide receiver from Tennessee. Those might be a little bit of a hint at maybe where our first two draft profiles are going to be when we finally start to do that. So keep it locked and loaded. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.